If you have your Bibles with you, uh, I'll invite you to uh, start in Genesis chapter 12. Um, we're going to cover a lot of ground today. And uh, somebody remarked before the service began today, if I was going to cover each verse, um, I would love to do that uh, over about the next 20 years. That'd be fun. But they're assigned to me today in one sermon. And so we're going to do our very best to tackle Genesis 12 to second Chronicles chapter, chapter nine. Today's sermon is entitled, it, it, does it seem, is it just me or does it sound really loud? Am I the only one? Great. All right. I can deal with it. Um, today's sermon is entitled God builds his nation. God builds his nation. And here's the focus that I hope you'll hear multiple times as we push through the Old Testament narrative from Genesis 12 on. Here's our focus. The Lord God, through his Christ, is graciously building a kingdom of redeemed people for their joy and for his own glory. Let me repeat that because I want you to catch it. I hope you hear it several more times today. The Lord God, through his Christ, is graciously building a kingdom of redeemed people for their joy and for his own glory. Well, before we dive into Genesis chapter 12 and much more of the Old Testament, let me pray again for the preaching of God's word. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes so that we may see wonderful things in your word, in your law. And Father, we pray today that your gospel would come not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, Jordan began an eight-part series that we've titled Seeing God's Glory, a series primarily based on a biblical outline that was written by the late Kendall Easley, a former professor for Jordan and Nathan. And I'll be borrowing heavily from his work today, as much of what I say is going to come from his work entitled Biblical History. Jordan preached the big picture biblical theme of God's kingdom last week. You could trace it from the beginning of a sermon to the end as he covered the first 11 chapters of Genesis, seeing the need for redemption among men. The need for redemption was made clear as he pushed through those first 11 chapters with really three major events that led to judgments, the garden, the fall of mankind, judgment would follow. The flood was God's judgment on rebellious man and then Babel. So those three events really were highlighted last week, garden, flood, and Babel. But beginning in Genesis 12, the thrust of the kingdom story that Jordan began last week shifts from judgment to mercy. This afternoon, we will cover a little over a thousand years of history from Abraham to Solomon. Today's sermon God builds his nation begins with God's plan to do just that by calling Abraham in order to deliver his people from slavery and begin building them into a nation. God's kingdom building begins with a single family, Abraham and his wife, Sarah. And by the end of the sermon, you'll see that it will have grown into a mighty nation, Israel under David and Solomon. The Lord God through his Christ is graciously building a kingdom of redeemed people for their joy and for his glory. We wanna begin there in Genesis 12. And really, if we look at the rest of the book of Genesis, it describes four generations of one remarkable family led by the patriarchs, Adam, excuse me, Abraham, not Adam, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. 
These four generations would lay the foundation, the underlying structure for what would ultimately become the nation of Israel. God calls Abraham through God's particular means of drawing Abraham out of what would be an uneventful life until God reaches out to communicate with Abraham. And his call of Abraham is one of an unconditional promise to become the ancestor of a great nation. And ultimately, you'll hear me say that word several times today, ultimately because we have, as we push through this Old Testament narrative, these moments where we see these big events or what may seem like something small in the moment, but they have an ultimate purpose. And so we see in Abraham this covenant that God makes with him that ultimately leads to the nation of Israel. Look with me in Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse one. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This covenant that God makes with Abraham is really threefold. To make Abraham's descendants into a great nation in a particular land. To bless Abraham and to give him a great name. And to use Abraham ultimately to bless all the earth's people. From a human perspective, as I mentioned a moment ago, Abraham was just a migrating pagan who married his beautiful half-sister and a number of exciting adventures that would take place in his life. He had done nothing righteous, at least not recorded, for the previous 75 years of his life before God's calling upon him. But from a divine perspective, Abraham was to become the spiritual forefather of all who are righteous in the sight of God by faith, both Jews and Gentiles. In Hebrews chapter 11, we get a look back at Abraham's life and it says this, verse eight, by faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place where he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for a city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Two other life-shaping events during Abraham's day that I wanna highlight that show God's sovereignty, his holiness and power. So as Abraham's carrying out this covenant that God has made with him, we find two other significant events. Abraham's nephew, Lot, tragically lived among a godless, perverted society, quite honestly, much like our own. And God's judgment fell upon them, destroying everyone who didn't flee without looking back, including Lot's wife. One of the great New Testament warnings to us is to remember Lot's wife. Run toward God, don't look back. Another event in Abraham's day was the story of Job, who was a righteous man who suffered greatly, losing all his fortune, all of his children, and even being stricken with bad health. But we know in the story of Job that God will restore to, does restore to Job, his family and his fortune and his health. But in the process, Job is humbled. Job is humbled in a word reminding him of his position in light of God's omnipotent, sovereign power. This covenant promise that God extends to Abraham is also extended to Abraham's son, Isaac. 
but not Abraham's son, Ishmael. This covenant was extended to Isaac because he was the son of Sarah, despite her age, by the miraculous God-filled promised pregnancy. The promise was not extended to Ishmael, who was born out of Abraham's attempt to fulfill God's promise through his own means, his own wisdom and own power. Again, Hebrews 11 tells us, by faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Abraham continued to act by faith and the covenant promise of God was extended to Isaac. By faith, Hebrews again, chapter 11, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to him, excuse me, it was he to whom it was said, in Isaac, your descendants shall be called. So as we follow through in this Old Testament narrative, we see in Hebrews chapter 11, that from Isaac, the promise extends to Jacob, but not Isaac's oldest son, but his younger son, Jacob and Esau, born as twins, but Esau came first. And this covenant was extended to Jacob, not because of Jacob's goodness, but to demonstrate God's merciful, sovereign, unmerited favor. Romans chapter nine tells us about this in verse 23. And he did so, and God did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. In turn, the promises extended to Jacob's many sons with majority, with the majority of the events related to this covenant continuing to extend from one generation to the other surrounding Joseph. Again, we'll lean on Hebrews 11 for our understanding of exactly what God's doing in these four generations from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob to Joseph. Verse 21 of Hebrews 11 says, by faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worship, leaning on the top of his staff. By God's foreordained plan, through Joseph being sold into slavery, into Egypt by his brothers, being imprisoned there based on a false accusation from the wife of a prominent man, and ultimately rising to second in command from the depths of humanity. We see God's thread of building his nation sustained in the life of Joseph. While in Egypt, Joseph and his families multiply into numbers worthy of being called a nation. Again, Hebrews chapter 11, the very next verse, 22 says, by faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. Though his covenant, this covenant that God has made to Abraham was entirely dependent on his unconditional commitment. There is the presence of faith, both from Abraham and his descendants, which the covenant was extended. The Lord God, through his Christ, is graciously building a kingdom of redeemed people for their joy and for his own glory. As we conclude Genesis and transition into the next step of God's plan to build his nation, we find in the book of Exodus, the people of Israel would move from Egyptian slavery to freedom in the wilderness. Following Joseph's rise to power in Egypt because of his significant ability to plan, organize, and execute a plan to store up supplies for a famine, his family is allowed to settle in the land of Goshen, which is very fertile soil along the Nile River. And while there, God's people multiply from the size of Joseph's family, about 70 or so, to millions in the span of about 350 years. This increase in population was a threat to the Egyptians and therefore the Hebrews were gradually enslaved out of fear. 
Under this yoke of slavery, the people of Israel suffered with barbarity and increasing bleak conditions as time went on, highlighted by Pharaoh's decree to kill all male Israelite newborns. And in the midst of this hardship, God calls a leader for the nation, Moses. God's sovereign hand on the life of Moses is evident from the preservation of his life when Pharaoh made this decree to his placement in the palace to putting courageous words in his stammering mouth. Moses was called by God who revealed himself to Moses through a burning bush on Mount Sinai. Here Moses would meet the I am. Through Moses, God would send 10 plagues to redeem the Israelite nation from slavery in Egypt. The encounters between Moses and Pharaoh were mere exhibitions. When we look at the big picture, the real encounter was between God, the God of Moses and Pharaoh's empty idols. People have attempted over the years to disprove, to disprove the actual miraculous plagues that took place, but none of those detractors can explain how the people of Israel were able to escape the plagues themselves and Egyptian slavery. And the final of those 10 plagues is a hint of God's salvation for his people. That is to come through the Passover lamb as his blood was spread across the doorpost, similar to the blood of Christ being spilt at the cross. And just as the blood of the Passover lamb in Moses' day spared the people of Israel from the final plague of death of the firstborn in every home, so the sinless blood of Christ now saves all who believe from the righteous wrath of God upon unrepentant men. As if the plagues in Moses' day were not enough to demonstrate God's faithfulness and power, God's mighty hand of deliverance is on full display when the people of Israel cross the Red Sea on dry ground as the river stood literally up as God commanded. That same sea would collapse back into its natural form the moment Pharaoh's entire army had entered its banks, consuming every person in pursuit of Israel. The victorious Song of Moses found in Exodus 15 is also sung in Revelation 15 by those kingdom people finally and forever redeemed by the Lamb of God. Listen to Revelation 15, this song of Moses. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw something like the sea of glass mixed with fire and those who were victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, the song of the lamb saying, great and marvelous are your works, Lord God, the almighty righteous and true are your ways. King of the nations, who will not fear you, Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you, and your righteous acts have been revealed. Upon Israel's miraculous deliverance, God would continue to prove himself faithful and mighty. Over the next three months, after the people of Israel are delivered from Egypt, they would be provided bread daily, manna, literally bread from heaven, provision of meat. Quail was given to the Hebrews, the defeat of the Amalekites, as long as Moses held his hand up in prayer, aided by other men, organize the entire country in administrative units. Think about that. They've grown literally to millions and they're organized into administrative units. I'll be honest, that's one of my personal favorites as I consider what took place in the next three months. That's a much more difficult task than you can possibly imagine. And they encamped there at Mount Sinai. Once at Mount Sinai, God would make clear to the people of Israel 
that he had not only redeemed them, but that he was calling them to be his chosen people. The Hebrews were chosen, not on the basis of goodness or merit, but by God's sovereign mercy to be his people. This covenant keeping God who had promised to make Abraham a great nation had fulfilled his promise to a people, quite honestly, who are unworthy of the promise received. Too often people think God has called them because they're special. But the reality has always been God calls people and because they are God's people, they therefore then become special. As God's people, Israel would be compelled to worship him. The Lord God through his Christ is graciously building a kingdom of redeemed people for their joy and for his own glory. Throughout history, even here where we find Moses and the Hebrews, people have been recognized as nations would have had identified land and would have had functioned under a common law. That's not true of Moses and the people here. Usually the land identity would come first and then laws of the land would evolve. One of my college roommates uh, actually had the opportunity to help write a constitution for one of the countries that broke off from the old communist Russia. And uh, they were there in that country as a missionary and helped write their their constitution. Laws were being drawn up for a land that people dwelt in, in our day. Well, the same has been true throughout history, but in God's plan to build his nation, this order was reversed. The law came first and then came the possession of the promised land. Through Moses, God gave his law, moral, ceremonial, and civil. It was here at Mount Sinai that God makes the Mosaic Covenant, which the book of Exodus describes in much more detail than the previous Abrahamic Covenant. One of the main reasons that this covenant was spelled out in more detail is because it was to be fleshed out in the Hebrews' daily lives. They were to live upon this law. But the major difference in the covenant of Moses and the covenant of Abraham is that Conditions were attached to the covenant made with Moses, whereas the conditions to the covenant of Abraham were not there. God just simply promised. God's covenant with Abraham was unilateral. No action required by Abraham or his descendants. Though, as we established earlier in the sermon, there certainly was faith among Abraham and his descendants to which the covenant applied. But in God's covenant to Moses, God's blessing his provision and protection were contingent upon the devotion and obedience of God's people. These conditions are well known in their most succinct form as the Ten Commandments. A quick note on the Ten Commandments. The commandments were given to the people, the people of God. The people that God had just delivered, saved, redeemed from Egypt. These were not commands given so that if they obeyed, he would deliver. His deliverance came first and their obedience would follow. The entirety of scripture emphasizes God's sovereign election coupled with faith being granted as the means of salvation, not works, not obedience to the law. Another important piece of God building his nation through the law, using the law to shape his people is the reality that God both desired and intended to live among his people. This can be seen in the rules for the priesthood and the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a tent designated for worship of God. And a few, few men that is, were to be set apart to attend to this place of worship. Aaron, Moses' brother, and his sons were designated as priests of the tabernacle. And Exodus 29 gives us 
some insight into what this was to look like. God says, I will meet there with the sons of Israel and it shall be consecrated by my glory. Think about that. And I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. I will also consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve as priests to me. And I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. Because of his presence, the presence of the Holy God was to dwell in this place of worship. The details and methods prescribed were to be followed exactly as instructed. This portable tent of worship will be present and a vital part of the Hebrew society until Solomon's temple is both built and destroyed roughly 500 years later. Much of the law can be found in Leviticus where the holiness of God is also emphasized. Jordan read from 1 Peter today that quoted Leviticus. Our God, as we see in Leviticus, is a holy God. He is glorious, morally perfect, the standard for ethical purity. God intends for his people to live as he made them, holy unto the Lord, set apart for him. So laws for sacrifices were also made that included offerings for sin and guilt that incorporated the shedding of unblemished animals. Their blood would be spilt, representing the price for sins being paid. And so similar to the Passover, as we've already stated, we know just as in the Old Testament that there was this great need for atonement to be made for God's people to be in a right relationship with him. This ultimately and finally is fulfilled in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. See, there's a thread. God's building his nation in the Old Testament, but that thread strings through into the New Testament where we see God building his kingdom through the blood of his son, Jesus. For the next 40 years, Moses would lead God's people through the wilderness where significant rebellion and grumbling would take place among God's people. There's a steep consequence for this type of sin. These wandering wilderness years are often referred to in the New Testament as a time where egregious sin was committed, not to be repeated. We're warned not to be grumblers like the people of Moses' day in the wilderness. And as the story unfolds, the end of Moses' life is recorded at the end of the book of Deuteronomy with a final word from Moses before Joshua begins his God-given quest to conquer and inhabit the promised land. Moses' parting words were a final appeal to a new generation to renew the covenant of God that had been made with him on Mount Sinai. This renewal would require genuine repentance on the part of Israel, forsaking their sin and turning to God. The Lord God, through his Christ, is graciously building a kingdom of redeemed people for their joy and for his own glory. As a church, we just finished the series through a book, through the book of Joshua together, a series which, to be honest, I, I thoroughly enjoyed. It is here that we find ourselves in this history narrative. I'll save time today since the story of Joshua should be fresh on our minds with just a short summary of God's people conquering and possessing the promised land. The only piece missing from the people of Israel becoming a nation is the land to call their own. And we find this promise, this promise of land, not only to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, verse two, but we find it again in Exodus 23. Listen to this promise that was made. I will not drive them out from you in a single year so that the land will not become desolate and the animals of the fields become too numerous for you. I will drive them out from you little by little until you become fruitful and take possession of the land. 
And I will set your boundary from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates River. For I will hand over to, excuse me, I will hand over the inhabitants of the land to you and you will drive them out from you. Joshua is simply obeying the Lord and being the instrument to fulfill a promise that God had already made to his people. The conquest begins through God's protection of spies in the land of Canaan through a believing prostitute named Rahab. Then, as God had done for the previous generation, he splits a major river, this time during flood season, no less, to show his power and might to both his people and their enemy. God also sends fear among the enemy of him and his people directly into their hearts and they melt. Then one of the most well-fortified cities in the land, Jericho, crumbles before them, sparing only Rahab's family whose home was in that wall. Surely, this is one of the battles that the sons of Korah considered as they penned Psalm 44. Listen to verses five through seven from that Psalm reflecting upon this part of history. Through you, we will push back our adversaries. Through your name, we will trample down those who rise up against us. For I will not trust in my bow, nor my sword save me. But you have saved us from our adversaries and you have put to shame those who hate us. Though Joshua and his leaders definitely showed considerable military strategy, the first battle set the tone for this conquest. Every battle belongs to the Lord. Despite a coalition of 31 kings rising up against Israel, God's people ultimately conquered their enemies and took possession of the land. In the last few verses of Joshua, he triumphantly notes that God kept every one of his promises to the Israelite people. Not one word failed. Now behold, Joshua 23, 14 says, today I'm going the way of all the earth and you will know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one word of all the good words which the Lord your God spoke concerning you has failed. All have been fulfilled for you. Not one of them has failed. The same God that made a promise to Abraham is here with, Jos- with Joshua in his day. The Lord God, through his Christ, is graciously building a kingdom of redeemed people for their joy and for his own glory. After Joshua, the nation drifted through a dreaded period of judges, which ended with the leadership of Samuel. Similar to the darkness, defeat, and despair that followed Joseph's prosperity through Egyptian slavery, again, darkness, defeat, and despair settle in following Joshua's conquest because of the allegiance of God's people to foreign gods. They begin to worship idols. And unfortunately, Israel didn't heed the warnings that God had given them concerning pagan gods. Earlier, when I read the promise of land that God was going to give to the people of Israel in Exodus 23, I ended in verse 31. But the next two verses provided that warning that Israel did not heed. Listen to it. You shall not, excuse me, you shall make no covenant with them or with their gods. You shall not live in your land. Otherwise, they will make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it is certain to be a snare to you. The judges showed with bitter regularity a cycle. A cycle quite quite honestly that I feel all too familiar with. Israel, God's chosen people, blessed of God, the fulfillment of his promises in them turned to idols. And then in their idol turning rebellious sin, neighboring countries would conquer and oppress them, followed by repentance and a pleading with the Lord for relief. 
And then God would divinely appoint a judge to deliver them. And they would experience a time of rest and peace only to turn again away from God to idols. This is the cycle that we find over the course of 16 judges, each bringing temporary deliverance from the consequences of Israel's rebellion, including Deborah, Gideon, Jephthah, who happened to be the son of a prostitute. God's thread is amazing how he sustains this line to Jesus. Samson, Eli, and Samuel, all judges in this area, in this era, sorry. These were bleak days for this nation authored by God. And yet right in the middle of this darkness, these dark judge days, there's hope. God was still preparing a way to build his nation through a Moabite widow. The book of Ruth tells the story of a widow finding love and fulfillment for herself and her mother-in-law, Naomi through her unlikely marriage to Boaz, a wealthy Israelite bachelor who redeems the land and the name of Ruth's deceased husband. It's through the family line of Boaz and Ruth that King David will arise. The Lord God through his Christ is graciously building a kingdom of redeemed people for their joy and for his own glory. And as the time of judges comes to an end, it's important to note that this 300 year long agony is summarized by two examples of religious and moral depravity in the book of Judges. These stories contain a repeat sentence. In Judges 17, six, it says this, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And then at the end of Judges, Chapter 21, verse 25, it says this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Though those repeat verses are true, Israel missed the meaning of them. There was a king. He was committed to Israel, but he was not the king of their desire. They wanted a man. They wanted a military political leader. Their hope of a king was not God's idea of their king. As a side note, I I just have to mention that though military and political leaders are certainly important and they will do good for a nation, our hope should never be in a man or military or politics. Our hope should rest solely on God, his rule, his nation, and the cross that is foundational to his kingdom. As Christians, we should seek to influence our earthly nations that we live within without losing focus that God's kingdom, his church is primary. And we find at the end of these judges days where the people of Israel were longing for an earthly king, a man named Samuel called by God through the answered prayer of his barren mother ends the time of judges with some remarkable feats, mainly that he would reclaim the Ark of the Covenant for the people of God and that he would establish a monarchy for Israel. In Samuel's farewell address, he appoints Saul, God's elected leader, sometimes we forget that, as his successor. Saul's kingship over the United Tribes of Israel began a new era of God's redeemed people. After a few centuries of defeat, Israel was about to move into a place of prominence in the ancient world. However, shortly into Saul's reign as king, he would disobey God so grievously that God refused to establish his nation that he refused to establish his nation and to build his kingdom through the family line of Saul. Saul lacked the patience to follow after God, demonstrated in his inability to wait on God at Gilgal and made sacrifices without Samuel's presence. There are certainly other failures of Saul that we could touch on today, but the waywardness of his heart can be seen most clearly in his jealousy of David and his attempts to kill him despite David's faithfulness to Saul. 
His final demise came after he consulted with a witch before losing a major battle to the Philistines, followed by his tragic suicide. Saul's life was indeed a tragedy, but God, he would remain faithful to his people despite the failure of the judges and Israel's desire for an earthly king. First Samuel 13, 14 says this, but now your kingdom shall not endure. Speaking to Saul, the Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as a ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So here we find God again through his Christ, graciously building a kingdom of redeemed people for their joy and for his glory. Many chapters of the Bible are dedicated to the life of David in Samuel, in the Kings, and in the Chronicles. And the primary significance of David is that God chooses to make another unconditional covenant. And he does so with David, just as he had with Abraham. The promise of the Davidic covenant was the Lord's promise of an everlasting dynasty of David's descendants to rule God's people. The eternal fulfillment of the Davidic covenant will be visible and everlasting in the reign of Jesus Christ over his redeemed people. The promise that God makes David comes to full fruition as Jesus is crucified on the cross. The Lord God through his Christ is graciously building a kingdom of redeemed people for their joy and for his own glory. And like Saul, David's 70 year life would include a 40 year reign over Israel. And despite opposition and being the least likely son of Jesse to become king, David went from being viewed as a young, worthless shepherd boy to the champion of the people of Israel, to their king. Here, David begins his rule of the southern kingdom, Judah. And only seven years into his reign, the northern kingdom would submit to his leadership as well, and the entire nation would call David king. Under David's rule, Jerusalem expands in size, population, and influence on the ancient world. A magnificent palace was built, but David was troubled in the middle of it all. Troubled that the place of worship for God the God of Israel was still a portable tent. David sought to build a temple for the earthly dwelling place of the presence of God. However, the building of that temple would be deferred to the next generation. Even in all the success and victory that David tasted, there were several troubles that accompanied David's reign. This man after God's own heart, he committed adultery with Bathsheba, had her husband Uriah killed. The son that was born out of that relationship was put to death as judgment. His only daughter was raped by one of his sons and another son rebelled against him. That was David's life, but it wasn't about David. It was about the promise that God had made to David. Meanwhile, David, according to Samuel two, chapter six, and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood and lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. Why would I read that? Because this man, after God's own heart, David, penned many of the psalms that we sing to God in worship today. And even though David had that string of troubles, when it came to the end of his life, he was still worshiping God. According to First Chronicles chapter 29, it says this, so David blessed the Lord. Here's David's parting words. In the sight of all the assembly, and David said, blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our father forever and ever. He gets the big picture. Yours, Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and on the earth. Yours is the dominion, Lord, 
and you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. And in your hand is power and might and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. The Lord, through his Christ, is graciously building a kingdom of redeemed people for their joy and for his own glory. Well, I have good news. We've made it to Solomon, the end of the sermon. You you have endured a thousand years of narrative. The era of Solomon would follow his father, David. And it must be regarded as the greatest flowering of the Israelite civilization. It had come into full bloom, exactly as God had planned. From a human point of view, the great wealth and considerable military influence that Solomon exercised in the Middle East was astounding. Solomon, the son of David and Bathsheba, no less, enjoyed the benefits of the foundation that his father David had established. Many of the writings of the books of wisdom were penned by Solomon, to whom God has granted much wisdom, including the Song of Solomon, this long passionate poem of the beloved, which mirrors Christ's love for his own bride. From the perspective of Israel as a complete nation, Solomon is best known for building the magnificent temple to honor Yahweh's name. Over the span of seven years, Solomon meticulously constructed this visual wonder until it was dedicated to the Lord. Finally, this beautiful temple is erected that would represent, that would house the presence of God. And upon its completion, the Ark of Covenant, which contained the Ten Commandments, would return to its final home. Listen to how Queen Sheba described her visit to Solomon's kingdom. When the queen of Sheba perceived all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his servants, the attendance of his waiters and their attire, his cupbearers and his stairway by which he went up to the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. She was literally overwhelmed. Her breath was taken away. Then she said to the king, It was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. Nevertheless, I did not believe the reports until I came and my eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. You exceed in wisdom and prosperity the report which I heard. How blessed are your men. How blessed are these your servants who stand before you continually and hear your wisdom. Blessed, she finally gets it right here in verse nine. Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore, he made you king, do justice and righteousness. Upon the sight, not of this kingdom and nation that Solomon built or David or Moses, or Joseph, or Isaac, or Jacob, or Abraham, but upon this nation that God built, her breath was taken away. The Lord, your God, through his Christ, is graciously building a kingdom of redeemed people for their joy and for his own glory. Let me finish with this. In the time of a little over a thousand years, God built his nation to its best earthly expression so far. Christ is still to come in this story. Beginning with one family, he laid the foundation through the patriarchs, promising through the Abrahamic covenant that Abraham's many descendants would one day live in their land, a land far greater than Canaan. After Abraham's descendants descendants entered Egypt and grew into the size of a great nation, God brought about a pivotal event using Moses to set them free from the bondage of his mighty mighty hand, or by his mighty hand, I should say. And after this deliverance, the Lord gave them the law and the Mosaic covenant, as well as promised land to live in 
by Joshua. And the final part of God's plan to build his nation after the seeming delay of the judges era was to establish a permanent dynasty through the Davidic covenant to bring to the world a magnificent temple in which his redeemed people would worship him. God had succeeded in building a nation of worshipers of his great name, despite the mess, the sin, the rebellion, the imperfect leaders. God had built his nation from Abraham, Job, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Rahab, Ruth, Deborah, Gideon, Jephthah, Samson, Eli, Samuel, Saul, David, Bathsheba to Solomon. All these people were playing a role in God's big picture. But all the while, 1000 years of history, these people were in the shadows of God's greater plan. God was carving a path for the coming of Christ. The fulfillment of every Old Testament story and promise. 1000 years in the making. Christ is the plan. There's only one way to read the Old Testament with Christ in mind. There's only one way to read a thousand years of narrative. The cross of Jesus Christ is our salvation. It's the only way to read it. The Lord God through his Christ is graciously building a kingdom of redeemed people for their joy and for his own glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your covenant promises. We are redeemed because you keep your promise. And Father, we thank you for allowing us to walk through a thousand years of history, not even touching every detail, missing many important ones. But we were able to see enough this morning to be reminded of your faithfulness, your power, your might, your holiness and your plan, save your people for our joy and for your glory. Father, I pray that you would get the glory due your name as we consider Christ and his cross. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.